Blog Talk Radio. And now on Blog Talk Radio, you're listening to Wine Talk with Stu the Wine Guru. January 19th, 2011. It's 7 p.m. Eastern, and I'm your host, Stu the Wine Guru, coming to you live from beautiful Coral Springs, Florida, as I always do. As you know, I will take your calls anytime during the show at 1-646-381-4860 or email me questions at info at You can also go into my chat room here on the show page and chat with other wine enthusiasts or simply tweet me any questions you like to at StuTheWineGuru on Twitter and I'll read them live on the show. I want to say thanks to all the listeners out there for getting the word out about my show. Welcome to all of you listening worldwide. I call that the power of the people meets the power of the Internet. Now, if you want to find out more about me, just Google Stu the Wine Guru. You can find the websites, the videos, the articles, and the TV shows I'm currently a part of. Speaking of articles and reviews, I'm writing wine articles and reviews for Yahoo and The Examiner, so look for those as well. I've also made a Wine 101 video series that can be viewed just about anywhere on the Internet. Uh, but to play safe if you want, you can always go to my website at www.stewthewineguru.com and check those out. My latest is on wines of South Africa, and I highlight the Sauvignon Blanc of a fantastic new vintner, Seven Springs, from the Hermanus, West Cape Town area of South Africa. Check it out. It's a great new Sauvignon Blanc. All my wine articles are now available on any smartphone. Just download the Hello Vino app. And you can take my wine reviews and articles with you anywhere you go. Just pull out your phone and go to Hello Vino app, and there you go. Very, very, extremely important note that I want all my listeners to please mark on your calendars and make note of. And remember, as of February 1st, 2011, my show will start at 6 p.m. Eastern instead of 7 p.m. Eastern. Please make note of that so this way you don't miss it. Also, one other very important note, the show will be going from one hour in length to 30 minutes. 
This is also an important note so that you don't miss anything for future shows. Hey, hi, this is uh, John Ratzenberger. When I'm not doing voiceovers for movies or doing commercials, I'm listening to Stu the Wine Guru. I suggest you do the same. No actual celebrities were used in the making of this promo. Only celebrity impersonators. Hey, this is Sly Stallone. You're listening to Stu the Wine Guru on blogtalkradio.com. When I'm out making action pictures, I'm listening too. Right now, I'm sipping on a nice Tusker Red. No actual celebrities were used in the making of this promo. Only celebrity impersonators. So tonight, we have an incredible top winemaker with almost 30 years experience. His wine company makes some of the best Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays, I would say, available anywhere. The name of the wine company is Patson Hall. His name is James Hall, and he'll be with us shortly. Of course, the number to call in is 1-646-381-4860, or if you're shy and you prefer the computer, email me your questions for both James and I to info at stewthewineguru.com. You can also tweet me your questions to at stewthewineguru on Twitter, and I'll read them live here on the show. As always, I've opened a chat room for the listeners to go into and chat. You can also ask questions of James or myself, and I'll check into the chat room live periodically during the show to get answers for you. Yeah, hi, this is Tony Danza. You listen to Stu the Wine Guru. He's not bad. I listen to him every once in a while. You know, drink a Tuscan Red, try to take down the edge. Pretty good. I like him. Not bad. But first up, I want to thank the listeners who are following me on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and all social media websites. I love social media. I can talk directly to my listeners and my guests alike. I enjoy the immediacy of the medium. I like the ability to give updates in real time, and my guests are doing the same to promote the show. So thanks to Twitter and social media. Some show notes. I'll be a guest on the Emmy Award-winning PBS show, Check Please South Florida. I'll be kicking off its fifth season. The show airs February 21st, so fire up your DVR for that. I also shot a guest spot on the hit CNBC World Show, Wine Portfolio, with host Jody Ness. The show is taking on the Miami wine and food scene, and during the taping of my episode, I showed them around Miami and took them to best places for both. We discussed my radio show and the wine industry. Taping was late last month, and the show will air February, so check your local listings for that. I have to tell you, I cannot wait for you to see both of those shows. There will be more TV appearances coming up, and I'll let you know via this radio show and Twitter as they happen. Also, I will be narrating a promotional digital video for multiple Napa Valley wineries. I'll let you know when that is complete. For all of you wanting to know what events I'll be attending so you can meet up with me like my tweeples do on Twitter, January 27th through the 30th, not too far away, I'll be a media sponsor covering the second annual Key West Food and Wine Festival. Come down, eat some fantastic food, drink some great wine, eh, and be sure Come say hi to me. February 24th through the 27th, I'll be covering the 10th annual Food Network South Beach Food, excuse me, Wine and Food Festival. Amazing to think it's been 10 years. Wow. 
you have to check this event out. It's it's awesome. All the cool chefs, all the who's who of the wine industry are there, and of course, including me. So, come say hi. March 18th through the 20th, I'll be reporting on the Boca Bacanal event. Lots of good stuff happening the first few months of this year down here in Florida. That's the schedule so far, so keep listening here, and I'll keep you posted. Since I'm a media sponsor for the Key West Food and Wine Festival, I've worked out a great deal for my listeners. You can now purchase VIP passes and receive a $20 off discount. What you have to do is use the code STWG, as in Stu the Wine Guru, during the checkout process. Keep listening in and follow me on Twitter for more information. Remember, if you have questions, I have answers, so call me at 1-646-381-4860 or email me at info at stewthewineguru.com. You can get into the chat room and voice your opinion. Let me make sure everyone listening knows James's website. They can go there for more information about his great wines. To learn more about James Hall and Pat's and Hall Wines, go to www.patshallwinery.com. That's P-A-T-Z-H-A-L-L-W-I-N-E-R-Y.com and find out where you can buy his wines locally in your town or buy them directly from Pat's and Hall Vineyards. I am always telling you that that is the beauty of the Internet. You can sip some wine while you buy some wine. So without further wait, let me bring on my guest for the evening, Patton Hall's James Hall. James, welcome. Hi, Stu. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And yourself? Well, it is a glorious day out here in Napa. Clear as a bell, awesome. 60 degrees. Couldn't ask for a nicer day, frankly. Ah, excellent, excellent. So that's that's good for the. Uh, it's always great for the wine business when you have good weather. <laughs> well, we've had a really rainy winter so far, and so people have been a little behind in their pruning because it's not a good idea sure. to prune vines in the winter uh, in the rain. So uh, the last ten days, everyone's been pruning, pruning, pruning. Oh yeah, oh absolutely. And um, so let me let you know how it works here. Um, I'm going to ask questions of myself that I have for you. I'm going to have uh, some tweeted questions. And we have a very interesting uh, tweeted question from someone that you'll very much appreciate. I'm sure you may have crossed paths uh, sometime in your past, and um, and some email questions that have are now coming in as we as we speak. So I just wanted to give you. And there's no particular order. I'll just be asking you them, um, you know, as I see fit. Um, so, without uh, further ado, let me just uh, jump in right away. Um, what at what age did you first start traveling with your family to Europe, and uh, and where in Europe did you go? Well, I my father was a university professor, and um, one year in 1968, he took a full year off, uh, something called the academic sabbatical, and so mm-hmm. I was only 11 years old, and so I got to spend a year traveling around Europe, and we spent quite a bit of time in France. And it was my first exposure to French food, and I realized how incredible French bread and butter and cheese and, oh, my God, I just seriously (laughs) went off the deep end with French food. And, of course, there was wine. My parents were drinking wine, and I had a few sips and a smell, but it wasn't really something I was that interested in. The the time I really got interested in food in Europe was when my sister, uh, the second oldest sister, fell in love with a Frenchman, and they got uh-huh. married in the south of France, and so we all had to go over, and we spent two weeks in the south of France uh, when I was 16 years old, and um, 
that's when the hook really got set. Uh, okay. I spent two weeks uh, learning how to appreciate Provencal cooking, and, of course, wine was part of that. And at 16, um, it was considered very normal for, you know, an inexperienced child to have a glass of wine. And so um, that was something that was just considered very normal. So it was really when I was 16. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, that, and, and that that's kind of interesting. It's very neat because um, I don't think many people in this day and age uh, travel at a young enough age to really, really appreciate Europe uh, and and get a feel for definitely, of course, French cooking because it's just amazing. Um, I mean, unless they uh, you know try it here in the states when it's made, but it's not. It's really not the same as when you're you know. Everything is about the ambiance and uh, and the people around you and the moment that you're there and the reason that you're there and the reason why you're eating what you eat. You know, it's the whole package. So um, that's that's a great thing to have uh, to have had in your uh, early years. So I, I I read about the textbooks that you were reading prior to going to uh, UC Davis when you were I guess at UC Santa Cruz. So what were the first textbooks on wine that you started reading? Well, there was the classic um, wine analysis uh, by Maynard Amarin, um, which was a chemical text. But I was taking chemistry as part of my uh, anthropology degree, and so started getting interested in wine chemistry. Uh, I was also concurrently working as a waiter at nights to try to help pay for my education at a very swanky a uh, restaurant that specialized in Nouvelle cuisine, if you remember that fad from yes. back in the 80s. <laughs> ah, yes, I do. <laughs> Generally an excuse for lots of wine glasses and small portions, but uh, they <laughs> yep. had a oh, fabulous wine list, one of the, yes. the better wine lists in Santa Cruz. So mm-hmm. I was also serving wine at night, um, Merceau Charms, Vintage Champagne, uh, high-end Burgundy, and so I, I sort of put two and two together. And, um, you know, reading a little bit about the chemistry and the fundamentals of winemaking and then serving these wines at night, it was like, holy cow, I can actually transfer to UC Davis and study fermentation science and do something I'm really interested in and leave this pretty boring uh, academic degree behind. So I, I jumped at the chance. It uh, it was the best decision I ever made. Uh, definitely. I Believe me, it, had you not, I imagine we would have been... <laughs> We wouldn't be talking today. <laughs> no, uh, I would be in a dig somewhere in southwest uh, uh, Arizona, probably. <laughs> so now I'm going to grab a, a tweeted question, and I, I kind of alluded to this a little bit before, but this is um, – I'm very honored to have this particular um, Twitter person tweeting this to you. Mm-hmm. James Suckling, oh. uh, yes, has asked you oh, – is there a movement back to more refined, slightly lower alcohol wines in California? And thank you, James. I have to tell you, I, this is the first time he's ever uh, participated in the show, uh, so I'm I'm very happy to, to have him. Well, that's a great question, and I think the answer is unequivocally yes. Um, and I think that's a natural extension of the the way the wine business has, has moved in California for some years. Um, we had a period during the 90s when a lot of new brands came onto the scene, uh, a lot of new vineyards were being planted, and I think the tendency to try to see how big and 
uh, extracted and dramatic um, these wines could be made uh, is, is just very natural. If you have a, a new terroir you want to see, you know, or a new car or a new bicycle, you want to see how fast it'll go. Um, sure. Once you've sort of explored those limits, the, the real question to my mind about a great vineyard is how subtle, how complex, how intricate can the wine become? And I think many people are headed in that direction. So California is blessed with a very warm climate. We're able to achieve levels of maturity that most countries in Europe would only hope for. And yet we still have a ways to go in developing wines that are truly elegant and layered to the point of the very best in Europe. So I think it's uh, very much an appropriate approach that we're taking. Um, we only make Chardonnay and Pinot Noir here at Patson Hall, and those varieties, I think, particularly lend themselves to wines that are a little less forceful, a little more layered and intricate. And, and I hesitate to say subtle, but there's a, a certain aspect to great wine that is not hit you over the head obvious. It's uh, it's a very um, time-consuming process to get to the bottom of a beautiful bottle of wine. Excellent, excellent. I have to tell you, that's a that's a great answer. That really is. Um, so, so let me take you back a little bit here. Uh, you you're at UC Santa Cruz studying liberal arts, as we mentioned earlier. You meet up with Anne and Moses. Um, was it a calling that made you decide to transfer? I mean, I know you talked a little bit, you alluded uh, a little bit about UC Davis uh, to study viticulture and enology. I mean, did you kind of feel like okay? In, I mean, I understand what you were doing. Uh, in, as, as far as work goes, but um, you know, what was it that made you say, you know, what I really think I could go in this direction. This would be, you know, uh, definitely a career. Well, I had looked at transferring very carefully. You know, it's a big step, but at the same time, uh, I was only 19 <laughs> when I started working, you know, at this restaurant. And so when I turned 20, I still wasn't of legal age to drink. And right. Even though, as part of my shift, I would taste wine and stuff, it was it was still very early, and I thought, you know, why not? I'm just sitting here uh, studying anthropology, and I didn't see that going particularly far. And, <laughs> and so it wasn't so much that I was, you know, had this deep passion to become a winemaker, even though I was very, very interested in it. But it was like, you know, a lot of young people were sort of like, what the hell? You know, why should I stay here and keep doing the same thing when I can try something new and different and see how it works out? Um, and, you know, the tuition was the same at UC Santa Cruz versus uh, UC uh, Davis, and actually being a transfer student from Santa Cruz to Davis was much easier than getting into Davis originally because I, sure, sure. you know, I didn't have a 4.0 average. Um, <laughs> so it all just sort of worked out, and like a lot of things, I think when you're young, you know, you look back and maybe it appears to be very logical and methodical, but at the time it was just, you know, Decide and go for it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> suddenly, sure. I'm in, and, and, suddenly, I'm studying winemaking. <laughs> and and it paid off, too. And it paid <laughs> off very well. Uh, here we are, you know, 20 some odd years later. Um, so, I, I guess what I, I want to ask is so tell my listeners about your early experiences working at Flora Springs and meeting up with Donald. Well, I was very fortunate. Um, to get out of Davis at a time when there was a lot of new wineries um, in Napa. Um, the the renaissance, um, you know, in the true sense of the word, the, the resurrection of, 
of Napa had been, you know, started in the 60s, really, with people like Joe Heights and um, Joe Phelps and a few others. And um, when I got there in 83, there were a lot of new vineyards, um, and Floor Springs was owned by the Comas family, and they had moved up uh, in 1978 and renovated the winery. And by God, they were making barrel fermented Chardonnay and, honest to God, French oak barrels. And we, um, it was, it was a really exciting time, where it felt that like Napa was doing so much interesting new work with great new vineyards, and everyone knew about the history, and everyone had tasted wines from the previous era that were just mind-blowing, and it became this uh, sort of a just a, an exciting time. Um, a lot of people had very little experience. Um, I was hired right out of school to be an assistant winemaker. Um, I had one vintage of experience, and there I was in charge of the cellar at, at Flora Springs. Um, and so it was uh, just an exciting new time when, when people were trying things. And I remember we went through long discussions about whether to put the Chardonnay at Flora Springs through malolactic fermentation. Um, sure. And I was like, hey, that's how they do it in Burgundy. You know, let's let's open up this bottle of Burgundy. You like that, right? This went through barrel fermentation, <laughs> surly, malolactic. Let's go, let's go, let's try it. And so um, it was a bit of a division, actually. The owners um, were a brother and a sister, and the brother didn't want to go through Malik, and the sister did. And so she came to me one day and said, listen, I've got my own vineyard. I'm going to buy you barrels, and you're going to make wine the way they do in Burgundy, but you're going to do it in the basement of my house, and you're not going to tell my brother. (laughs) (laughs) And so that secret code project was called Leaping Lizards. (laughs) <laughs> for some crazy reason. I don't know why they wanted to call it Leaping Lizards, but that was the full Monty, uh, 50% new French oak, uh, tight grain, uh, native yeast, native malolactic, bottled without filtration. It was wow. uh, you know, right out of the 15th century Burgundy. I didn't <laughs> even I mean, bottled it by hand right out of the barrel, uh, hand corked the whole thing, and that wine aged. I couldn't believe it. I pulled bottles out of my cellar, you know, 10 years down the road, and it was wow. And I I realized then that there was something about the old techniques and the minimal, handmade, less technology that was very exciting. And um, so so that's really how it started. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. And and, and I I kind of dovetails into the question I wanted to ask you, which was, so you're working, let's just say, we'll take move forward a little bit. You're working at Honig, right? I love yeah. Honig. I was Mike's great. The whole, the whole, uh, the whole, um, their whole wine company is just. I, I love what they do. Um, in '88, and you decide with Donald, yes. and Heather, mm-hmm. and Ann, and to release your first Chardonnay. Take me back to that time and what your mindset was for your first collaboration with them. I mean, what that must well. have felt like. You're putting something out, and you're going, okay, Here, it's like a baby, right? You're just you're like, okay, here it is. I'm putting it out into the world. <laughs> well, what was that like? We, were, we all had jobs in the wine business, uh, except Heather. Um, and so we have you know, ate and slept wine for literally years. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was the winemaker at Honig, um, I had several custom crush clients that I worked with as well. So I had a little consulting career. And at the time, we thought, you know, we're just working folks. We don't have any money, um, but we really want to have our own project where we can control all the parameters, 
thinking back to Flora Springs and the and the malolactic question, it was like, geez, let's just take the handcuffs off, swing for the fences, and do something that's crazy. We looked around and we saw all these estates in Napa that had huge money behind them. <laughs> there was this right. influx of capital into Napa, and we realized, oh boy, we can't compete with these people. So we took a very stealthy, um, the poor man's approach. We pooled $5,000, and we said, look, this is not enough money um, that we should really get too worried about this. If it's a flop, it's a flop. It'll be a fun flop. We can drink that much wine. We'll get enough <laughs> people interested in it that, by God, we can twist their arm until they help us drink it. Um, and so at the time, it felt like a pretty low-risk venture. We had other jobs, and we thought, you know, this is just going to be a little Friday afternoon, Saturday morning project. Um, it's not going to be a big deal. We're not going to take out any loans, no partners, no vineyards, no winery, just making wine. Uh, at Honig in the back room. And so, frankly, it felt like a very uh, low-risk venture because we right. were ready to walk away. If it had blown up in our face, it would have been, hmm, well, that was kind of fun, but let's move on. But it wasn't. Uh, it turned out to be a very interesting little project. We hooked up with a guy named John Caldwell of Caldwell Vineyards, who was at the time selling exclusively to Jason Palmeyer, who had started his sure, sure. brand a couple of years before. Well, Paul Meyer was more interested in being a Cabernet producer, and he had some extra Chardonnay. And John came to us uh, in July of 1988, and I said, yeah, we know we're selling you this two tons of Chardonnay, but guess what? Jason Paul Meyer just came to me, and he said, I've got 10 tons of Chardonnay I don't want. And so John was like, who am I going to sell the Chardonnay to? And we said, we can't buy it. We've only got $5,000. And he says, tell you what, I'm going to give you the wine or the grapes. You make it into wine. And if you like it, pay me for it when you sell it. And we went, oh, okay, how could you turn down a deal like that, right? Absolutely. So now we said, uh-oh, we need barrels. So we went to some family members, and we had this little business plan that was literally written on two pieces of paper. And we said, look, we need 17000 bucks to buy some barrels. My dad said, hmm, only if you give me 10% interest. <laughs> he wasn't real optimistic that uh, that we were going to make a dime out of this thing. So we agreed to it, and by God, we bought the barrels. We got the grapes for free. We fermented it. And so instead of this little weekend project, now suddenly we've got 600 cases in the barn. And now the pucker factor is up because it's like, oh, oh my sure. God, this is what we wanted to avoid. We didn't want death. We didn't want – oh, and so – we realized we had to let the clutch out and really start driving and sure. you know never looked back 10 years of no. basically putting every dime back into the business and maintaining a second job and then finally we were able just to pull just enough money out that we wouldn't starve and we quit our day jobs and hallelujah <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so so let me take some questions from that are emailed and they're coming in Kind of fast and furious here. So the the, the first up is from Benny847 from Manhattan, New York. It says, Hi, Stu. You have a very interesting and informative show here. This is my first time listening. I'd like to ask James, if you could tweak one thing about the winemaking process, hmm. what would it be? Like interesting question. Let me just thank Benny847 from Manhattan, New York, hmm. for your email question. And James, take it away. Well, that's a tough one because, you know, it is such a natural process. It's 
it's almost like a force of nature the way wines are made um you know in their in their purest most artisanal form uh, the old adage is great wine makes itself um and it's really not too far from the truth in that the right. microbes are in the winery and if you just carefully monitor things then generally good things happen but i would say if i had to tweak something it would be that there were some areas of Russian River that were a little bit colder. <laughs> if I had, you know, maybe sure. like Inlet Bay, you know, maybe the Russian River had a small estuary and there was just a little cooler influence um, right there. But I got to admit, you know, you can't change geology. So no, um, but I mean that, that that makes sense though. I mean, I can I can definitely understand that as far as uh, you know for the the type of varietals that you're looking to make. Um, so the next one is from Shai Chen, 1956, from Hong Kong, China. It says, Stu, I very much enjoy listening to your show each week. You have a very good, you have very good guests on. My, my question for Mr. Hall is the following. When did he know he was ready to make his own wine and start a company? Thank you. Well, I mean, I guess you kind of answered that. but um, I didn't. I, guess you... <laughs> I think if anyone says with absolute confidence that they are ready to become a winemaker or a chef <laughs> or any of these highly subjective artisan crafts um, he is probably suffering under an abundance of confidence. <laughs> the more I make wine, the more I realize how little impact I really have on the process. And, and frankly, uh, it's very gratifying to have people say, oh my goodness, we love your wines, but in the end, it's the vineyards and I'm just the one that doesn't keep them from turning into vinegar. My job is very um, hands-off and more like a, a shepherd as opposed to, you know, a, a true manufacturer. And I love that aspect of wine and that there's oh, yeah. many aspects out of control of a humble human and just stand back and watch it happen. So um, yeah. I never felt ready and every August <laughs> regular as clockwork, I'm riddled with anxieties and self-doubt <laughs> about how the whole process is going to go because, you know, it's it's a little bit like playing cards. You never know what hand you're going to get dealt. Sure. I enjoy your honesty and your candor, most definitely. Uh, it's, it's definitely refreshing because there's plenty of plenty of people out there in the, in the winemaking industry who uh, might have, and I'll call it, and, and, and nobody specific, of course, but false <laughs> bravado. That's just, you know, of course I, of course I knew. I woke up one yeah. morning and said, by gosh, I've got to be a winemaker. There's nothing much more than I can do in life than that. You know, uh, okay, really. I am on. on that subject, though. I'm very gratified to see how many young winemakers there are that have started early and are truly yes. dedicated to the craft. Um, yes, it yes. is. It's it's remarkable how many 20s and 30 year olds are really motivated to make great wine. It's uh, yes, the millennials. Well, yes, most yeah. definitely. It's it's phenomenal and it's great and I, I I like I like the trend I love the trend. Oh yeah. Um. So the next one is from Pedro Bianco from Santiago, Chile, and it says, "Stu, your show is very very good and I learn a lot about wine. I would like to ask your guest what was it like after producing his first vintage and waiting for the public to respond to it." Good question. And I just want to thank Pedro Bianco from Santiago, Chile, for that question. Well, hmm. The public did not respond much to the 1988. <laughs> Our first vintage um, was we re we released it in 1989, which happened to be a very grim economic time, 
And the most common response we got was, what are you fools thinking charging $22 a bottle for Napa Valley Chardonnay? Oh, when I could buy Mondavi or Gergich. Um, you know, good luck with that was sort yeah. of the general <laughs> attitude. And so the original vision of us drinking the entire vintage was coming back to haunt us. And we realized that we didn't have enough money to make the 1989 vintage until we sold the 88. And so right. we lit a fire under it, and we went out there and literally banged on doors and begged. And one of the real strengths this company had is that it had a very sophisticated marketing and sales approach. Donald had um, spent years selling wine. And so we did have a national exposure in that uh, Donald was a national sales manager. And so, by God, we put 1988 Chardonnay into every little cubby hole from here to New York. Then the 89 came, which turned out to be a very challenging year in Napa. Uh, 89 is still... <laughs> In older winemakers, uh, you you get this look of stark terror when you mention 1989. It was a a very warm, tropical uh, year that had a deluge of rain in early September, which caused huge problems with botrytis. Well, our Chardonnay, we picked two days before the rain, um, being an early ripening variety, and we didn't get caught up on that. We had a beautiful wine. We had to sell half of it on the bulk market because the it was just too big a crop, and we couldn't afford to bottle it. And so right. at the time, um, you know, we thought, oh, geez, this merry-go-round's about ready to stop. I mean, we barely sold the 88. The 89's a lovely wine, but, you know, we're going to keep, you know, forcing people to, to drink it. And the question was, all right, the 90, it's the last shot, three years. And so we made the 90, and the 89 was still not sold out. And so we sold half of the vintage 1990 in bulk. Um, and with the 1990, we also had our first access to Hyde Vineyards. Uh, mm -hmm. I met Larry Hyde in the fall of 1989 making wine for somebody else uh, at Honig that had bought Hyde grapes. And um, unfortunately, that, that customer didn't pay Larry Hyde for the fruit. And Larry came to the winery looking to get paid, and we met each other. And he says, hey, well, you know, as long as this guy's not paying for the grapes, how about you buy them? So in 1990, that's when we got the first Hyde Vineyards fruit into the into our Chardonnay. And a guy named Robert Parker tasted that wine and wrote close to a rave on his uh on the back page um that paraphrasing went something like I've been very disappointed in how Napa Valley Chardonnay has been moving towards high volume industrial style winemaking, but there are a few people out there doing things the right way and one of them is Patson Hall. He went on and gave us like a ninety two or something. Yeah. Our New York really distributor called <laughs> Yes. And bought the entire vintage. Boom. Lock stock and barrel. Suddenly, wow, we're back in the game. That's what it <laughs> we sometimes. are now oh, totally up on inventory uh, and ready to keep swinging at the pitches. And boy, then the 91 came along and the 92, and that was a watershed moment um, that allowed us to hit the reset button on our cash flow. And the 90 is still one of the best wines we've ever made. It was a glorious vintage. I remember hearing about that. In fact, I don't think I've ever had I, – I haven't had been lucky enough to try that, naturally. Um, and I, I doubt there's any left. No. <laughs> um, there, we have a couple of magnums in the wine library, and it's probably a dotage by now. But um, 
you know, it all seems inevitable perhaps looking back on it, but it is a very haphazard, slow-moving process uh, in the sure. wine business. And sure, boy, sure. when things go wrong, it's a bit like a train wreck, you know, it just keeps <laughs> going. <laughs> sure. So the next one is, the next question I have from you emailed in is from Gail Wombie from Auckland, New Zealand. And it says, Cheers, Stu. Great job with your show. Good, solid wine information, and I really enjoy your guests. My question for James is, in his travels, has he ever thought of collaborating with winemakers from other countries? And if so, which countries? Thanks, and again, cheers to you both. First of all, I want to thank uh, Gail Wombi from Auckland, New Zealand, for your question. Appreciate it. And James? That is a great question. Um, I think there's no winemaker alive. Well, I shouldn't say that. That's too absolute. But many winemakers love the idea of going to somebody else's uh, terroir and making wine. Um, sure. You know, of course, one has, you know, you learn from making vintage after vintage with your with your own grapes and in your own area. But there's always, a, a, at least I think in most most really good winemakers' um, personality, a sense of exploration and a sense of always wanting to improve. And part of that is learning things from other winemakers in other regions. And so I have always loved the idea of going to other regions. Unfortunately, um, fall in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, my time is booked. So I can't leave. Um, I've right. always wanted to do a vintage in Burgundy. Um, and someday I'm sure I will if I you know have an early vintage here and they have a late one I can run off and do it so that opens the southern hemisphere and frankly New Zealand would be fantastic um some of the oh, yeah. that they're making uh true cold climate high acidity terroir driven um the masterly winemaking it would be a treat to go down there of course 6 months difference um vacation or you know life changing trip who knows it could be fun i'd love to do it that would be great excellent excellent yeah that would be that would be fantastic um so then i have some other questions i want to ask you so um have you ever thought of you know let's make a cab franc or let's do a Syrah or let's make a really incredible zinfandel Mm-hmm. and just see how it goes. I mean, you know, there's a point where I would think, and this is just one man's opinion, mm-hmm. you, you become, you, you get a, a following, and you, and, you, and you have the process, you know, obviously down, relatively pat um, in the wine, and, and you make good wine, and people come back for the quality, and that's natural. And then you say to yourself, you know, okay, so, you know, we make, we make a, couple of different, a couple of different varietals, but, you know, let's, let's try this. Let's go in this direction, and, and whatever that particular varietal was. Did you ever think of that and say, okay, we, oh, yeah. we, we did it, and now we're, gonna, now we're actually going to put it out there? Well, um, it sounds like you must have been sitting in on some of our meetings <laughs> because <laughs> this is a very natural extension, I think, of, of any, any company. Um, and mm-hmm. winemaking or restaurants or whatever, you know, how to branch out, how to diversify, how to, you know, show the strengths and capitalize on the momentum. And so we did consider varieties over the years. Um, of course, I, I've made a lot of wines. Um, I've been a consulting winemaker for people. Um, I've made all the varieties you've mentioned, but just not under Patson Hall. So I've had right. a great opportunity to, you know, to get my yayas out without having to put that <laughs> on the label. But as right. a as a brand, um, 
you know, as I mentioned earlier, Donald had a lot of experience with sales and marketing, and we've always had a very clear vision that as a small family business, um, we have to be very clear about who we are and what we do. And being a Burgundian-style winery, um, those are Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, and we just felt that, yes, California grows wonderful Zinfandel and Syrah and Cab Franc, um, Chenin Blanc, Gewürztraminer, I mean, name it. There are just wonderful vineyards, but we must just keep it simple focus on what we do and keep polishing the diamonds and not get distracted with side projects. And so mm-hmm. we form this little rule in the company that if one of the partners wants to make another varietal, we all pitch in and buy them a case of that wine and leave it on their doorstep and they get to drink <laughs> it. We we don't have to. Just because you love a wine doesn't mean you have to make it. Right. Um, no, that's great. So my cellar's that's full fantastic. of all sorts of interesting wines. <laughs> And whenever I get a hankering, I just go pull a cork. Instead of putting the cork in, I pull the cork out. (laughs) James, I was going to say, that's a great way to say, you know, I really have a hankering for this type of wine. Maybe I'll tell them I want to make it, and then they'll (laughs) (laughs) say, well, we did get so far as crushing some Gewürztraminer. Um, There's some wonderful old vine Gewürztraminer over in Russian River, and we're, of course, interested in Russian River in so many ways. So one of our growers said, hey, you know, I've got this three tons of Gewürztraminer, old vines, beautiful cobbly soils. And um, at the time, um, there were a couple of very famous Austrian chefs, (laughs) Wolfgang Puck being one of them. um, And we thought, ah, you know, Grüneveltliner, we can't do that. Let's make a true dry Gewürz. We'll match it with this um, Alsatian slash Austrian cooking and we'll have a restaurant-only Gewürztraminer. Eh, well, that lasted about three months. I tasted the wine out of tank, and it's like, this does not cut it. <laughs> so we sold it in bulk, and right. we, took a, we took the proverbial bath, <laughs> cash flow-wise, and um, you know, we stumbled home and went, oh, geez, that was close. <laughs> we almost broke our own rule. And yeah, really? so ever since then. Um, but you know, we do bottle 14 different wines, so mm-hmm. it's not like, you know, everything's chiseled in stone and we just keep, you know, going over the same old ground. There's new vineyards every year. I always look for new vineyards. Um, there's so much opportunity in Sonoma, in Mendocino, in Santa Lucia with with great terroir, motivated owners, wonderful farming. Um, the There's a, an embarrassment of riches. Um, yes. So for me, Pinot What's Noir is so site-specific that even though I bottle eight of them, you line them up, they are not the same wine. You, oh, definitely maybe you not. can tell they're made by the same guy, but they sure don't taste the same. So No, no, I, no, no. I have to say, I, and I want to tell everybody, I want to take a moment, mm-hmm. and I want to tell people that if they get to Sonoma, if they get to, uh, they want to get a chance to, to enjoy uh, really, really fantastic shard, really fantastic Pinot Noir, and and it's no um, it, it's no uh, mystery that I've talked on my sixty shows that I've done uh, over the course of this past year and change that I'm a big Pinot Noir fan. Um, so for me, it, it's a it's a uh, it's a dream to be able to have really phenomenal Pinot Noirs to drink to sample like yours, and and uh, you know you can. 
you can kind of look at the different terroir. That's the thing about I, I say I, I kind of liken it to, and that's and here's where we go back to France and all. And I say, you know, the closest thing that you get to, there's only a couple places in the United States that get really close to the terroir, uh, uh, you know, of, of Burgundy and 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 the places that that grow uh, the the Pinot Noir grape in France, and that is, of course, Willamette Valley, Oregon. Um, and Russian River and Sonoma, and there's places, you know, Sonoma, of course, that grow it. I mean, because the terroir is so close and the climate is so close that I think that's why, um, you know, you choose to, to, to put that varietal there and you know it's going to do well uh, and that you're going to have something, that, a, a great product that's gonna get, that people are really going to appreciate because if they have any type of palate um, or versed palate, if you will, they can make that connection and they can make that comparison and feel like, you know what, this really is as close to that terroir as possible. So, yeah, and and, and I, I wanted to say I, I had a, a great opportunity to sample the shards and sample the pinots that you had sent to me. And um, and very soon I will be putting my, my report out on that, my wine review. But I did want to tell you that I, I really thought they were uh, they were exquisite. They were fantastic, and um, thank you very my much. My hats off to you. I've I've always knew I, I've always known that they were they were, they were great. I've always had them in the past, and I've always made recommendations of them. But um, and that's why I want to let everybody know. I seek out. I try to get the best guests on here, and the and the best the top wine winemakers on here, uh, and some of the ones that are new and you know green, if you will, to the industry. But when I do, um, there's a reason why I I get who I get. So uh, and and because you and the, the great thing about it is James is that you are uh, so uh, eloquent in your in you know in being able to explain everything about what you do and how you do it. So it makes my job extremely easy. And so I want to thank you about that as well. Um, well, thank you, Stu. I also wanted to extend an invitation to all your listeners to come visit us. Um, we recently, by recently, the last four years, uh, opened a tasting room. We call it our tasting salon in Napa. Yes. And uh, people can come. Uh, they don't need an appointment, to, but an appointment will allow us to do a sit-down tasting where we can taste through six of our single vineyard wines, um, three Chardonnays and three Pinot Noirs. And, you know, if you if you ask nice, we'll open up extra wines and spend uh, <laughs> some time exploring the various regions of the California coast. We, we make wines from Mendocino, uh, Russian River, Sonoma Coast, Carneros, and Monterey. Um, and it's really fascinating to taste these terroirs side by side as shown through the same winemaking lens. And so I think sure. there's this notion that the winemaker's in control. That's really not true. All I'm doing is showing the individual characters of these sites, and it comes through loud and clear when you line them up next to each other. And it's a really fun exercise. Um, of course, we give you some food to go with it and a little education, but mostly just a good time. So please, come on out and visit. That's what I wanted to say. So let me let me get back to www.patshallwinery.com. Actually, do it. Um, there's no winery in that. I'm sorry to say. It's just Pat's Hall. Pat's Hall. Pat's Hall. Yes. Yes. yes I, you know what? I had gone to Pat's Hall. Why did I go to Pat's Hall Winery? I, and that was... Um, because that was a website, a beta site, and you were probably then transferred to patshall.com. So you Got could it. get oh, there absolutely. through that URL. Don't don't worry about people mistyping, but the actual official URL is patshall.com. 
So let me let me say it again, www.patshall.com. I want people to go there. In fact, I'm going to put it into the um, chat room so that they can go and click Wonderful. on it as well. And and the good thing about it is is that, you know, you get a chance to go to Napa. You have to stop in. You have to get a chance, as James was explaining, it's part and parcel of the trip uh, to to really seek out the really great winemakers. And uh, and when you – that's why I always say, you know, I don't go to – I like to go to the places that are indigenous to that particular varietal because I feel like people do it well. You know, the ones that do it the best, so why I don't necessarily – I wouldn't necessarily go to uh, Alsace for a Pinot Noir, and I wouldn't go to, um, you know, certain places for uh, – I wouldn't go to uh, Chile for a Riesling. I guess that's what I'm trying to get at is is that you go, I, I like to go to the places that it's indigenous to because then you really get a chance to get artisan winemaking at its best and appreciate it. And so, therefore, um, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I just want to make sure everybody knows that they should do that. So uh, I have some other questions here. So let's, let's go off topic for a second here. So what do you like to do when you're not making wine to relax? What do you, what do, you do, James? Well, I have a six, uh, six-year-old first grader um, ah. named Sabina, and she uh, keeps me very busy uh, learning how to ride her bike. We went skiing for the first time this year, so that's a that's a hoot and a half. I just Absolutely. it's great being a dad. Um, I love mountain biking. Uh, I grew up in Santa Cruz, and I regularly go back. In fact, I'm going this Saturday to reconnect with some friends and do some mountain biking. But travel, I think the thing that uh, that Sabina and Anne and I love to do is to travel. Um, it's something that we've always enjoyed and, you know, chance to taste new food and see different parts of the world. And so I, I love to travel, uh, given the, the opportunity. Um, and then, well, I'm doing a bathroom renovation <laughs> at the moment, so I, a little bit of carpentry uh, and a lot of cursing. <laughs> During that laborious, <laughs> aggravating process, uh, anyone that's done home renovation knows how that goes. Absolutely, um, I, know, I, you know, I feel your pain, James. I feel uh, your pain. I'm just trying to keep all I, my I fingers. To, yeah, I was just saying, I was saying more to relax. So I mean, that, that, I mean, I don't know how relaxing that is, but well, uh, I, I, I rushed over here from the job actually, so uh, it's a blessed respite from the the sound of the nails and the saw, but. Um, you know, I'm just amazed at how fast things go. Here we are in January, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, it's January's almost gone. All these yes. things that I put off to till the new year, well, guess what? It's the new year. Let's go. So, um, yep. so it's just, you know how life is. It just stays busy. But uh, if I had to pick one thing, I would travel. <laughs> That's exactly my, my sentiments exactly. Um, my wife and I love traveling wherever we can go uh, and as often as we possibly can get away. Um, so I, I, my other question is this. I, I, this is the one question that I get a chance to ask all of the winemakers. And I love the answers that I get uh, because they're always different. So this is I, all the other questions I ask are unique to the winemakers that when, I, when I ask it, so you'll never find the same questions twice except for this one question. So mm-hmm. you ready? Uh, I, I think so. <laughs> Good. Okay. So you can have any wine you want, James. Mm-hmm. That's a statement, actually. That's not. Um, what what wine that you have had knocked your socks off, or is there a wine out there that you have never tried, but is on your wine wish list? 
you said, you know what, I, 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 you know what, if I can get a chance to have this, this would, this is my, I like my, no, I won't call it a bucket list because I don't want to be morbid, but you know, this is the one I want to try. Oh. Well, so I've had the I'd privilege of trying a couple of 1947 vintage wines. I had a, a 47 Corton uh, in Burgundy that absolutely blew my mind. And, you know, 47 was one of those legendary vintages. And France was just coming uh, out of World War II. And if you ever have a chance to have a 47 with a Frenchman, I think it's uh, it's a well, <laughs> well worth it. So I would love to have a glass. Or maybe a bottle, if I could be so uh, uh, greedy of the forty-seven <laughs> Cheval Blanc, you know, one of those Cheval legendary right, wines. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I have never had a sixty-one Bordeaux. You know, one of those vintages, the shining sure. light, the distance that everyone talks about. I'd love to have one or two of those. Um, of course, Burgundy. Um, I've yes. had the privilege to travel in Burgundy a few times, and. Um, they're so extraordinarily generous when you come and visit. It's 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 breathtaking some of the wines they open. But um, I I got to taste a vertical of Latache at uh, Domaine Romani Conti. Um, nice, nice, and, nice, nice. And um, if we got in this uh, Aubert de Valaine and I got in this discussion about whole clusters and how the tannin influenced the ageability, and uh, I swear to God, I was floating five feet off the ground. I, I was like. <laughs> You know, pinch me, please. Um, there you go. In fact, great. we were taking a tour through the cellar. Uh, the the two of the cellar guys were wrestling with the barrel, and and Obert goes, gentlemen, do you need some help here? This guy's a, a, a vigneron from California, and he could help you move that barrel. And I thought, oh my God, this is this is like a script. Absolutely. <laughs> so I've been exactly. so blessed to be able to try so many great wines, um, and I, you know, great. There's there's great wine and then there's wine that is an epiphany, and um, I think what you're alluding to is that occasional bottle, sometimes coming out of uh, right field, that is just startlingly amazing. Where you know you're everyone likes a good glass of wine, but when it just sends you into this this place of complete and utter. I hesitate to say bliss because that implies sort of a, a lack of uh, engagement, but there's more of a where you're where it's intellectually interesting. It smells fantastic. It, it's um, generally uh, over a wonderful meal. It can be a, a semi-religious experience. Oh, absolutely! Um, I agree a thousand percent. <laughs> I've had a few of those over the years. Um, yes, and I've always said, "Oh my God, am I going to be able to do this again?" <laughs> I hope so. And you remember it. That's the beauty of it is that you remember it. And that's that's the thing yeah. that I, I I have to tell you. Uh I, I love the fact that, you know, some I've had some winemakers who I had on the show and I asked the same question and you know, some I really have to think about that. I you know, and oh wow, uh you know, and, and I get, you know, maybe one wine, maybe one. Yeah. And I was amazed that you you were able you know, it's almost as if you you knew I, I was going to ask this question of you, and you know I mean I know you didn't. So that's that's well, great. That, that, you know it's on your brain, and that you you know you can it's recall that you can just come up with the the ones that you know that you remember that had that impact on you, and ones that you mm. you know would like to try. Um, I have another question, which is the oh, first no, time I'm asking this question. Yes, I'm sorry. So yeah. so if, if I was going to say so if you could make wine with any winemaker, 
living or deceased, who would it be? Make wine with any winemaker. Boy, that's a tough one. Hmm. Well, I love German wines. I, it would mm-hmm. be fascinating to spend maybe a vintage um, with uh, Ernie Lucen. Um I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of meeting him. He is a force of nature. The guy is he's he's one of my heroes in the business. Makes wine in so many different countries. Um, the other might be to follow Michelle Roland around for a vintage. Oh, sure. That would be, I was going to say. Uh, I'd probably have to sign, you know, an extensive non-disclosure agreement, of course. But um, the he's phenomenal. The rarefied uh, air that he travels in with the commitment to quality and the the diversity. I my, my God, he goes everywhere. Uh, that would be that would be a real treat. Um, Excellent. And of Excellent. course, who wouldn't want to spend the vintage at Domaine Romani Conti? You know. Yeah. You, I was waiting uh, for you to say that. I mean, you so, know, it's one thing to go in the church; it's another thing to, you know, stand in front of the altar. And uh, oh, boy, that would be that'd be a Big real difference. treat. <laughs> So so we only have a couple minutes left here, so what I wanted to ask was, are there any upcoming events or any things that are going on that you want to let my listeners know worldwide um, so if they make it to you uh, or they can put it on their calendar to plan? Well, um, hmm, you know, this is actually a little bit of a quiet time right now for us. Mm-hmm. Um, the events are going to be uh, coming up a little more. I'm going to be in Raleigh. Um, doing a charity event called the Triangle Wine Experience, which is a beautiful charity uh, that helps support a school for disabled children to help them learn to uh, read and speak. Um, so very wonderful children. It's, um, and so the Triangle Wine event in Raleigh. Um, okay. But then of course, uh, the tasting room here. You know, if um, if people are interested in Patson Hall, please come and visit. Um, it would be a real honor to to host somebody here and show them what we do. So uh, I think the short. I mean, is there anything that you know? Of? Is there anything? That, yeah, is there anything coming up that there you would? In other words, it doesn't have to be right this moment. I mean, it could be you know, two months, three months, five months, six months. Anything you know, so people. Can, you know, uh, well, we're going to be doing the um, the Wine Spectator Wine Experience. That'll be in New York uh, this coming fall in October. Um, I don't know if, uh, if you've had the chance to go to that, but it is, uh, it's a Lollapalooza. There's so much awesome wine. It's just, uh, it's, it's mind-boggling, you know. When is that again? Uh, it's in October. Uh, I don't know the exact okay. dates. I'm sorry at this point, but. Uh, no, that's not a problem. I'll probably end up at that. I mean, we're, we're far out enough that, that I've been. It's, uh, yeah. Best, uh, the best wine-tasting money um, bang for the buck I've been to, uh, you know, just the champagne table alone, you know. Let me see, do I want to try the sure. or maybe the lawn <laughs> or you know, it's like, oh, my God, I get to try these wines. Um, Absolutely. So that's a big one. Um, and then we're going to have a uh, release party uh, here in the spring in March. Um, and, of course, I don't have the date uh, finalized okay. so that yet, but you know, I'd love to post I'll tell it everybody to go to the website. Yeah, I will go to the website and they'll be able to um, get all the information about it. Well, James, I want to thank you for coming on my show. I really, really appreciate it. it oh, was I really enjoyed it. And, and I, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I want to make sure to let, let you know that I'm going to definitely look to have you on again in the future because there was a lot of questions that I had. A lot more had questions I had. An hour just was not enough. Um, so 
I want to thank you again, and uh, and we'll talk soon. And uh, be well. And when I'm in uh, Napa, I almost definitely will let you know, and I'll stop in and we'll we'll chat and have a glass of wine together. Ah, that sounds wonderful, Stu. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, what great questions too. <laughs> it's, Absolutely. Uh, you've got a, a very articulate and mindful audience. And so yes, it, it's yes, been a do. real pleasure. Yes, Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. Okay. See Take you soon. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye, James. So that was James Pat, James Hall of Patson Hall. Um, I want to thank everybody that called in tonight, emailed, tweeted uh, from the chat room. I want to especially thank James Hall for coming on and telling us about his amazing wines. As always, if you have any questions about the show, you can email them to info at stewthewineguru.com. You can also go to my website as well at www.stewthewineguru.com and click on all the links for my wine articles, videos, and listen to archived wine talk shows. As always, I say... If it's time to pour the wine, it's time for Stew the Wine Guru. Drink up, good wine, and good night. And now on Blog Talk Radio, you're listening to Wine Talk with Steve.